This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off today. Great to have you with us. It is always an informative and entertaining conversation with our strategy panelists. We have a lot to talk about today. So let me introduce John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister. Welcome, panel. Good afternoon. Hi, Jane. We'll start by talking about the calls from the medical officers of health in the COVID hotspots of Toronto, Peel, and Ottawa, asking for stay-at-home orders and travel restrictions between the regions. In their joint letter to the province, they say, quote, a stay-at-home order issued by the province through an emergency order is necessary to prevent and mitigate large-scale morbidity and mortality and irreparable strain on the healthcare system. A spokesperson for the health minister says, quote, It is critical to point out that after applying public health measures of a province-wide lockdown, which we are now in, it takes time for the intended effects of the measures to be realized due to the incubation period of the virus. John, what do you think about the request and the response? Well, I don't, uh, I don't, I'm not surprised by the request. And and quite frankly, I think it's their job as medical experts to, uh, to, to, to issue those kind of warnings. And I think they have been over the course of the, of the pandemic in, in some variations, um, you know, based on what stages we are in with, with respect to the pandemic. So I, so I, I, I'm not surprised by it, but, you know, I think that, you know, as, as politicians, I think they have to take that advice and, and 99% um, uh, of, of the politicians, I, I suspect, take 99% of the, uh, of, of, the, of the recommendations that are made. But I think that, you know, in the Ministry of, of Health official is right to say that, look, we, we just got in this last week. It does take a couple of weeks for this to take effect. It has in the past, certainly in some cases, uh, you know, some variation of a lockdown has, has worked and, and, and you know, sort of stemmed some, uh, some of the curve or some of the increases. So I think from that perspective, it works. But there's, I think, that, uh, as Doug Ford has faced and other premiers and, and has faced as well, which is the balance of trying to keep, you know, the, the people as safe as possible while still trying to keep the economy going in some way, shape or form, keep the supply chain going. And that balance, I think, is what they're trying to do now. The key thing is that as, as this is going on, and this is basically a, an opportunity to close the gap between the cases that are happening and the vaccines getting ramped up, we are getting more cases. We are getting more vaccines. We are getting more um, more uh, supplies in, and people are getting vaccinated. I think this month should be telling with respect to how many people actually get vaccinated uh, over the course of the next little while to see whether or not we close this down further or extend it beyond uh, 28 days. Karen, what about you, this request for stay-at-home orders in Peel, Toronto, and Ottawa? Well, there's a couple things happening, Jane, that I think are making it more difficult to get a clear message out to individuals about what, what needs to happen. Because, you know, Toronto's really been in the pseudo-lockdown since before Christmas. Uh, the only thing that changed is we opened up retail stores to 25% capacity. And yet the numbers continue to go up. And, you know, that combined with the fact that the vaccine uh, is getting rolled out, to John's point, but we also hear there's 30,000 unfilled spots and there's vaccine hesitancy amongst frontline healthcare workers. And then you add that into now that the experts are calling for frontline workers to get vaccinated ahead of uh, potentially low risk people in their 40s and 50s. Right. And I think notionally everybody can agree with that. But where it all collides is when you think, well, you know, I'm already doing everything that the government is asking of me. And I'm willing to say, you know, I'll defer my vaccine to someone who's going to take it. But if I defer my opportunity to have 30,000 unfulfilled vaccine spots, then you start to get a question of um, how, how are we, what is, what is actually happening here? And so I, I think there's a big question out, you know, in the general population, what is actually happening here? Because who, who's getting sick? How do we stop them from getting sick? Um, telling me to stay home isn't going to change my behavior because I'm already at home. Right. <laughs> and so it's, there's a disconnect, I think, between what 
public health is asking and what people are hearing and not knowing how is that actually, I don't know how to change my behavior anymore. And, I'm, and so sorry, yeah. that's, sorry, and I think that's where the breakdown is starting to happen, that the government has lost the complete narrative around what the end goal looks like. And I'd like to invite you to be part of the conversation as well. Will these lockdown, 28-day lockdowns right across the province, will they result in bringing down the numbers? Do you think it's enough of a restriction or should we go full-on stay-at-home order? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Charles Souza, what are your thoughts? Well, Jane, I find it all very distressing and I agree with uh, with Karen. This, uh, this, There is a huge disconnect. Here's an example. I, I brought in TTC as an essential service some years ago when I was Minister of Labor. I'm getting tweets now from individuals who are essential in the jobs they do. And they're reaching out to me as a former politician who doesn't have any authority now, saying, look at what's happened. You've made us essential. We're subject to the public. We're exposed constantly. And we can't get a vaccine. All this talk about shutting us down, and it's, a, it's been ongoing. As far as I'm con- concerned, we've been in lockdown. And the messaging is terribly confusing. But what's, what's really evident is get those vaccines done. And I, I, I welcome the leadership of, of the municipal, of municipal Council of Mississauga, for example. On Thursday, they're going to be calling for mobile COVID, COVID vaccine vans. Get them out to the factories. Get them out, like... Regardless of the age, I've been waiting for a vaccine. I'm eligible. It's been five weeks. I've not received a response or confirmation. I have since taken other steps to book a vaccine on April 17th. But the fact that it's been that difficult for a guy like me, Mm -hmm. and yet these individuals who are most exposed are not being vaccinated, is, is just totally ridiculous. Well, a big part of this pandemic has been the ability to pivot and pivot quickly, right? And we're hearing from Premier Ford uh, at one o'clock this afternoon, uh, a vaccination rollout update. And I'm wondering, I'm hoping, at least uh, hoping based on information we've received from the medical experts, that we'll see him put into action the calls uh, from experts like Dr. Warner at Michael Guerin Hospital, who are literally begging for essential workers to be vaccinated. People who work in factories, teachers, just to name a couple of these professions. Dr. Warner, other critical care doctors, John, say they're seeing more and more people under 50 contracting the more severe variants of the virus, ending up in ICUs. Some of them are dying. The virus is changing. Should the premier change the strategy? Well, you're asking me. Um, well, I'll, I'll start with John. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I, for sure. And I think that what you're, you, you know, the Premier has made it clear that it's a constantly changing, evolving sort of situation. This is not something that is, you know, is written in a playbook to say, you know, turn to page 45, and this is how you should be dealing with this. This is something that is uh, global. It's, it's new. It's caused us huge uh, damage over the course of the last year. And you're seeing not only issues with the vaccines themselves, uh, in, w- with respect to Canada specifically, with respect to supplies and, and some of the challenges we have with supplies and how many were being procured and who was being sent what. And then you've got problems with respect to each of the vaccines have their own uh, specific DNA. You know, with Pfizer has to have minus 80 degree storage and you can't ship it to somebody else. Moderna has, you know, two doses and it's a problem. AstraZeneca has its own issues. So every time there's a vaccine or every time there's an issue that comes out there and you get health professionals, not only in Canada, but around the world saying one thing about the drug, the U.S. not approving AstraZeneca, but shipping them to Canada, so Canada can have it approved and and uh, and sent out. Then you have people who are saying, "Well, look at, I want to get vaccinated, but I'm not going to get AstraZeneca." So they're not they're purposely not going into to get vaccinated, and you can't draw. There's still a lot of people out there, Jane, quite frankly, who just don't want to get vaccinated, and you can't force them. So yeah, there's going to be problems, but the government is tries tries to pivot every time there's a situation that calls for it to pivot. And they try to deal with it in the best way they can, given the circumstances with the complexity of the, of, the, of, the, of the various vaccines, how many there are, and how many we're getting. So I think it's a problem that everybody's facing, and I think they're trying to deal with it the best they can. 
Karen, one of the things I've I've seen as being impressive just over this last week here in the city of Toronto, some of the hospital clinics are now vaccinating people as young as 50 who are in hotspot postal codes. Uh, it could be as simple as bringing that eligibility age right down to 18 or 20 for people who live in those postal codes. That's what I think. I, I think it really needs to be... Um I think it does need to be an age-based strategy and to lower down to 18, I think would be appropriate. And I I don't say that to be um, not like that frontline workers should absolutely get vaccinated first. They should have priority access. There's no question. But, but the troubling aspect of it is that even in long-term care facilities, frontline workers have chosen not to get vaccinated. And the reality is we just don't have time. And I understand everyone's point. You can't force anyone to get vaccinated. But if you say frontline workers and they're not going to get vaccinated, then those spots remain unused. And we don't have time for unused spots. So lower the age to 18, then people will call in in those hot spots, and people who need and want the vaccines will get the vaccines. But there is, like, there is an emerging urgency to help people get over vaccine hesitancy because I'm actually quite shocked at how prevalent it is. And that people are not going to get a vaccine because they don't think there's any consequence to them or their families if they don't get a vaccine. And this whole thing will, as I say, will collide when we have everybody who wants a vaccine gets a vaccine, yet we have, you know, 50 percent of the population unvaccinated and we're still shutting down. Right. Charles. And, and that is a scenario. That is a nightmare scenario that could it be is. before us. It is a nightmare scenario. Charles, uh, wh- what about changing the strategy and how effective that would be? Yeah, I, I mean, right now we, we, we are reactive. We're taking on the situation as it, as it arises, and some of it is, is pretty dire. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, the Premier and others promise to be more proactive in getting ahead of this issue. Uh, supply is not an issue now. We have supply. We do have problems with distribution, and these are the same distribution problems that every province has had to deal with. Um, so for me, when I look at uh, uh, the severity of what's happening in Peel, for example, yeah, there are certain people that don't want the vaccine, but there are more people that do want the vaccine in Peel. There are more instances of um, people being uh, uh, caught with the virus, and they can't fight it off effectively. And that's been the biggest beef that Peel and Brampton and Mississauga especially have been crying for, saying, give us vaccines. Get those pilots that you have in other places. Just institute them here in the area so that we can combat the peak areas, especially those that are most prevalent in Brampton. Right. I mean, why not just send out mobile vaccination clinics to these factories? We know where the factories are. We know where the Amazon warehouse is. Just go and park and get those guys and those women out there to get their vaccines. Get it to the factory workers, get it to the teachers. Yeah, and, and the teachers as well. And not to continue quoting Dr. Warner, but I just think he's bang on with so many of his observations. Uh, he said in the first two days of April of the April break next week, you could vaccinate every teacher in this province. They're all on break. Get them vaccinated so that they're safe when they do get back to the classroom after the break. Let's get back to the phones or get to the phones. Uh, Some of you want to get in on the conversation here with our strategy panelists. 416-360-0740. Toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Jane for Libby, along with John Capobianco, Karen Stintz, and Charles Souza. Let's go to Nancy in Toronto. Nancy, go ahead. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to say that I I so agree with that about getting mobile units out to those food processing plants, out to Amazon. I don't understand how, why it's taken so long. It's it's a basic, it's, it's not that hard to do this. The government is spending tons of money. This is just another simple thing to do. And I I don't understand. Every week, there's the numbers of, here are the cases in the different workplaces. They name the companies. How difficult is it to go and sit there? Yes, of course, some people do not want the vaccine, but some of those people are going to want the vaccine. And I also don't think it's hard to get some people in those buses who who speak another language. Of course, people are going to want to have someone talk to them about the vaccine. It's not that hard. We it, live in a, in a city with how many different languages? Of course, dozens we can and dozens. do this. Yeah. I think that the government doesn't want to do that. 
Uh, thank you, Nancy. Thank you for your call. John, this would certainly also, um, Nancy's idea, uh, and mine and Dr. Warner's, everybody can have this idea if they want, but uh, it would certainly also uh, take away the issues around getting to the vaccine for these essential workers. If they could do this during their shift and not have to take time off work, which means they would probably not get paid, uh, this could be a big part of the solution. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think the government is looking at and, and has been looking at mobile vaccine, vaccine centers and, and opportunities for, for um, people to, for the vaccine to get out to the communities. Of course, as you know, uh, it's not as easy as everybody thinks it is, because obviously with Pfizer, it was much more of a harder perspective because of the storage. And that was an issue that, that happened early on because Pfizer was one of the first vaccines that got approved. And, and it was became an issue of you couldn't bring it to people. People had to come to it. But as we're seeing more and more vaccines coming together, like, for instance, Moderna and, and hopefully Johnson & Johnson and others, I think you'll have a, a better opportunity for those vaccines to be to be travelable so that you don't have to worry about the storage uh, containers. There was a story in B- British Columbia, a small town, where, you know, somebody accidentally left the fridge open and there was 180, I think, vials or, or, or you know, doses, I think, of, of a vaccine. I read, this in the, I read this in the news this morning where it was almost, it would have to be thrown out, but they made a special call. To, uh, to to the community to say, hey, anybody that wants to be vaccinated, come in, come in, and they had a big lineup, and they weren't able to, uh, they didn't have to uh, waste that uh, the 180 uh, vials. But but again, it speaks to the storage problems and some of the other issues that are facing us. This thing, but in short, though, Jane, there's no doubt that that having mobile vaccine places going to communities that that are are you know ch- challenged in some ways in in getting to various places uh, or or even people who just can't you know physically get to uh, vaccine spots go to them and I think that's something the government's looking at. Well, and the other idea too, right now at the moment, AstraZeneca's vaccine is only being given out to people 55 and older. That is based on Health Canada's recommendation. Uh, I was lucky enough to get my vaccine on Sunday in a pharmacy because of the lowered age to 55. Um, What about in terms, uh, Karen, of uh, delineating the the vaccines? So you're giving AstraZeneca primarily to the older population and you're giving Pfizer and Moderna to younger people, younger essential workers, simply because that vaccine has not caused any issues for younger people. Oh, absolutely, Jane. Like, and I think to your point, like, you know, the government has proven to be able to be nimble and pivot. Um, but, but I think now because there are, there are different voices from different perspectives that are, you know, advocating different solutions, there is, there's no longer a quote-unquote expert. There's, there's opinions that are informed by experience and good knowledge and, you know, maybe some common sense. <laughs> but, but, but we don't have like Teresa Tam isn't the, the go-to person anymore, right? So we don't, nobody is speaking um, on behalf of the quote experts around what is the best way to do this. There was sort of a buy-in that it would be by, you know, by age. And now we're at a point where age doesn't seem to be the right way to approach it. But we never got down to, like, because when you try to book on, on an online system, it's, it's purely by age right now. There's different categories, but you really don't, you get kicked out mm-hmm. unless your age is, is the correct age. So, it, um, you know, that's why that's why it is problematic. And as John's point pointed out, these vaccines aren't easily mobile, so they're not. They're, it's not easy to put them on a on a mobile unit and take them out to the site. Um, there's no question that that would be ideal is to set up a clinic at Amazon and have a vaccination clinic there, and a vaccination clinic at Canada Post, and a vaccination clinic at every food processing facility. You know, as Patrick Brown said, you can shut down all the retail stores you want, but as long as you allow all of these big box retailers and processing factories to continue, you still have an elevated risk in the community. Right. And so it, it's becoming um, harder and harder um, to figure out what is the right strategy, which is to your point, we need multiple strategies. We can't just use one anymore. Charles, do you have any further thoughts on that before we move on? No, I mean, AstraZeneca is more mobile, so it makes sense to try to take advantage of whatever resources are available to us to get those needles in arms. Just get them done. Get them done. Yeah. Ron and Guelph, uh, you have a comment for our strategy panel. Go ahead. Um, thanks, Jane, for taking my call. Um, I got my vaccine in Guelph yesterday afternoon. I'm 70. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> my neighbor and my sister decided not to get a vaccine, but I'm calling about the, um, the controversy over the, uh, in the baseball game in Texas. And I started reading the story by Brian Lilly and looked at the um, 
since um, as many Americans have had the uh, vaccine as Canadians. And in a lot of cases, the variant hasn't hard in the U.S. Yeah, our, your line is not that good, Ron. I'm going to let you go because that's frustrating for people. But thank you for calling in. Let's go to Donna. Donna in Stony Creek. Go ahead. Hello. Go ahead, Donna. Okay. This is very confusing, but I'll say it anyhow. I received my first shot of Pfizer on uh, March 31st. Then uh, I went to my computer. I received an email on April the 2nd. Oh, and I I was told that my second shot would be July 21st. Then on April the 2nd, I received an email that said my booking was canceled for both appointment one, it said appointment one and appointment two. Oh, it's a, so it sounds like there's been a, a bit of a bureaucratic problem with your individual situation. Uh, I know that that's, I'm not hearing much of that. I'm hearing that a lot of people are happy with the booking system um, and with uh, the hotline number as well. Okay, we need to move on along to uh, the next topic. Uh, let's, let's talk about the schools. We've seen 22 schools in Toronto close temporarily to in-person learning due to COVID investigations. And all of the schools in Peel region have gone to virtual learning, as have the schools in Wellington, Dufferin, Peel. So Peel's medical officer of health, Dr. Lawrence Lowe, invoked the order under Section 22, saying it's not that schools are not safe. It's just that there are so many community cases of COVID. They're moving into the schools. John, we'll start with you. What do you think about Dr. Lowe's independent move, separate from what the education minister, Stephen Lecce, has been saying? Well, I think that it's it's risky. And I think that, you know, Health officials have to have to realize they're not politicians. They can make recommendations as they should, but ultimately decisions are not are not up to them. It's up to the uh, up, up to the the mayor uh, or up to the political officials. So I think it's important to kind of make sure that you stick to your lane and not cause even more uh, panic and 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 issues that that might might arise of it. I think it's one thing to say that you know my recommendation is to do this, as we're seeing and hearing. Um, so, I, you know, look, I think schools have always been a, a controversial thing because, you know, any parent that I talk to want their kids in school, need to have their kids in school for the sanctity of not only their uh, mental health, but also to make sure that their kids not falling behind in learning. So there's a lot of push and pull with respect to parents wanting their kids to go back. And then others, unions and others who are saying, oh, no, schools should be shut down and health officials saying schools should be shut down. I think there's that that, that tug and pull that has to that, that happens. Um, but I, I suspect what you're going to see is a, a, an ongoing monitoring of it. I think Minister Lecce has said that, you know, that he's, I think it was the right decision to move the March break as he did. I think now once March break comes, whether or not the kids go back to school after that is one thing that they'll be able to monitor over the next week or two. Dr. Lowe actually will be on Fight Back tomorrow, so I'll I'll ask him about that. But it was within his rights, Karen, to invoke that order under the Section 22. It was, and certainly we've also seen uh that that uh, Toronto public health officer, you know, invoke certain uh, authorities that are uh, more restrictive than even what the province was proposing. So it's not unprecedented. You know, I, I think again, it comes back to um, to the point you raised about the teachers. If there was a, you know, a, a, we're going to do virtual learning until after the break so that all the teachers can get vaccinated, then I think people would intuitively understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but when there seems to be a one-off decision that's not linked to something of a bigger picture, then it seems to be arbitrary. And when things seem arbitrary, then people make their own decisions. And I, and I think that's the risk that gets created. Charles, what do you think about that, Dr. Lowe's invoking Section 22? Well, I think it was a courageous move. And um, I think, and John, I get the point about being elected versus those that you take advice from. But in this case... His move was well-received by elected officials, municipal politicians, who at this point are at extreme odds with the local MPPs who they feel aren't fighting enough for appeal in respect to what's happening. The extended break is welcome, but at the same time, I'm hearing from students and teachers saying they needed the break already. So it's very tough. It's a difficult situation to be under. 
but I think uh, the move you've made using Section 22 is well received by most people here in Peel. It's our Tuesday strategy panel. Charles Souza, Karen Stintz, John Capobianco, Jane for Libby. Final topic here before I say so long to our panelists. Prime Minister Trudeau, this uh, just happened this last hour, says he will be speaking with Premier Ford later today about expanding the vaccine program. To me, that reads, John, that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau may be maybe issuing uh, not so much an order, but in fact, maybe telling Premier Ford what to do, like to start to get these essential workers vaccinated. Well, uh, I think at the end of the day, Jane, they should all be working together and all for the for the greater good of, of you know, of, of, our, of our citizens. I think we've, had, we've seen too many in the past where they've been sniping and finger pointing and, and one thing or another. And if the, if the prime minister, you know, wants to show some leadership finally to, to kind of, you know, and, and pinpoint various provinces where there, there's, there seem to be some some help needed or whatever, that's great. I think it's, it's good for the greater good. But, you know, why wait now? Why not, you know, when, when, this, when the struggle was happening with vaccines and the premier was asking the prime minister for help, and of course there was silence only blame, uh, we, well, we heard of a lot of silence from the prime minister, but now all of a sudden he decides that he needs to go talk to uh, the premier of Ontario. Again, at the end of the day, if it helps us all get vaccines, great. That's all. We, that's what we need. Well, again, I think Charles, you said this that um, it, it's a it's a reactive approach. Clearly, the prime minister is also reacting to what the medical experts are saying. There's a lot of blame to go around, and John's right on the money. This is about cooperating and finding ways to work together. This is beyond politics and partisan issues. And we've, the public is tired. They don't, they don't want to hear more talking heads out there. And it seems to be repetitive um, from both the Premier and the Prime Minister. So, yeah, sit down. Get it done. Just get it done. <laughs> well, Karen, <laughs> just get it done. <laughs> Charles, that's your mantra today. <laughs> I know, from your lips to God's ears, honestly. Um, one, one thing that is a positive, Karen, and I'll end it here, and this is certainly not uh, to, to do any publicity for Justin Trudeau, but at the end of March, he was able to say that the promise was fulfilled for Canada to receive 6 million vaccine doses by the end of March. Will he be able to keep the rest of his promises as this relatively slow rollout continues? Yeah, I think, you know, I think he is confident and that he will be able to have the vaccine orders delivered on the schedule. And um, but, you know, it certainly is my hope that there's only nothing but support for what's happening in Ontario, because, you know, I have to believe that everyone is doing the best they can under very trying circumstances. We will leave it there. I thank you all very much for your time once again. Thank you, Jane. All the best, everyone. Fight Back's Tuesday strategy panel, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President, Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister. Today is National Caregiver Day. We pay tribute to the eight million Canadians who are caring for family and friends and the call for more financial support for caregivers. That's coming up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off for a few days. It's National Caregiver Day, a time to recognize the 8 million Canadians. Think about that. 8 million Canadians who are caring for loved ones. It's a day to bring awareness to the crucial role caregivers play, but also a time to shed light on their unique challenges and unmet needs. The role of caregivers is more important than ever as the COVID-19 pandemic has created additional pressures, negatively jeopardizing their physical, emotional, and financial health. If you are a caregiver, we invite you to join the conversation at 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Our guests this half hour include Amy Koopal, CEO of the Ontario Caregiver Organization, Carol Ann Alloway, a full-time caregiver to her husband and founder of Family Caregivers Voice, a group that advocates for the needs of Canadian caregivers. Also joining us is Karen Lead, whose mother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's at the young age of 57 and who died in January of 
2020 after Karen looked after her mom for 17 years. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Thank you. you Jane. Karen, of all, I'm very sorry for the loss of your mom. Um, I know what that feels like, and, and losing a parent is, is very difficult, uh, no matter the circumstances. Thank you very much. Tell us your mom's story and your story. Um, Okay. Uh, My mother was diagnosed um, at the age of 57 uh, with Alzheimer's disease. And at the the time, she had actually came to help me with my newborn Mm. because she was a registered nurse. And then I noticed, like, you know, she she was acting abnormally. So then we went to the doctor and then she received that diagnosis. And um, at the time, there was actually very little resources or um, nobody was around to show me how to live with this disease. Uh, 14 months after her diagnosis, my father had a massive heart attack and he passed. And then she came to live with me full time. So actually, um, I looked after her for 20 years and in the home. And um, it was very difficult to find any resources with my unique situation of being a sandwich generation yes. informal caregiver. Um, and, you know, balancing a career, a newborn, like a husband, you know, just basic life and looking after my mom. Um, and with dementia, especially Alzheimer's disease, it's not a neat and tidy uh, disease. So it doesn't follow stages where you can kind of like be proactive in her care. It was sort of like a day to day roller coaster of uh, you don't know what symptom is going to is going to present that day. And which also made um, care difficult. So, you know, you would get sometimes she'd be aggressive. So you could not get personal support workers to help you because they don't want to deal with that. Just like, you know, you don't want to deal with that. Um, And then they do, the Alzheimer's society does have a day program. Uh, However, again, you know, you have to be completely probably in the early stages of the disease in order to be able to get the benefit of, of your parent going there. So after a while, even that didn't work. And just just dealing with the disease over over months and days and years, and kind of like uh, kind of like going through the stages and not knowing what is going to develop or present, and having very little resources. Meaning, so like CCAC, at, I'm, I don't think it's called that anymore, but that's the Community Care Access Center, um, does provide. Uh, certain hours, respite hours, and it's very little. So to give, put it in perspective, it never changed. My mom was getting the maximum, and it never changed from the beginning of her disease to the end. So even in palliative care in the home, it was 14 hours per week. That was the maximum of, of care that you would get. So every other, I had to hire a living caregiver out of pocket just to supplement like eight hours a day and then, you know, with the 14 hours. So your, your whole life becomes, you know, like managing the care, talking to doctors, talking to nurses, uh, what medications, what's working, what's not working. Um, essentially my son, basically he grew up with the disease, Mm -hmm. so he doesn't know anything um, outside of Alzheimer's in terms of like having a grandparent. Right. And so it, I'm just speaking specifically about dementias, but it's, it's such a savage disease because it affects everybody that's involved in that care of that person. So it's not just, you know, taking away um, the, the cognitive functions of the individual. It's sort of like taking away a lot of the people that are caring for that person little by little. Karen, how did you manage? You say you were working full time. Did you work full time through the the whole time you were looking after your mom? Um, up until the probably 
I would say the 15th year, yes. I, uh, how, I, how did you manage that, though? Because you wouldn't have been able to leave her alone. No, I had to hire, uh, I hired help. Oh, oh I see. Yeah, okay. yeah, I had to. Yeah, out of pocket, yeah. Right. Um, it's That's quite a story. Thank you for sharing it with us. Let's go over to uh, Carol Ann Alloway. You are probably a lot of this feels familiar to you, Carol Ann. Um, your husband's story, how did you come to be his caregiver? Um, he had broken his ankle about 30 years ago. And um, after we retired, we started traveling and he was having trouble walking on his ankle. So we had it assessed and they recommended he have an ankle replacement. which we had done, but um, he got an infection two weeks after. So that one operation with a three-month recovery turned into 10 operations over seven years because of this recurring infection that they couldn't quite get a handle on. And that caused other problems as well. He developed congestive heart failure and um, has a lot of problems. Um, with digestion, and I think it's because of all the antibiotics he had, like he was on antibiotics for years. And in terms of uh, support for you financially and just time off, having respite for yourself, what does that look like? Well, um, we are fortunate that we were both retired and comfortable, Um, so financially it wasn't an issue for us, but... um, there were no resources. I didn't know. I didn't even know I was a caregiver until I met somebody um, after I'd been caring for my husband after five years. And she told me that that's what I was called as a caregiver. So mm-hmm. there was no respite. And I didn't think to ask for help. You're just sort of, you know, get on with it kind of thing. But it was extremely challenging. And after every operation, you think, well, that's it. Um, he'll just recover from this and then we'll carry on with our lives. But uh, we didn't and we couldn't. And just as Karen said, it's not just us that was affected. It's all the people around us. Um, you know, friends just gave up, talk, well, not talking to us, but inviting us over because Bill couldn't really travel anywhere. So, you know, people get on with their lives. We didn't have grandchildren over for sleepovers for over five years, um, and we hardly saw them because we couldn't really travel. We didn't know what was causing the infection, so we were just trying to keep them as um, separate from everyone as we could. Right. Amy Kupel, CEO of the Ontario Caregiver Organization, um, a lot of this sounds very familiar to you, I'm sure. It definitely does. I think both Karen and Carol Ann's stories underscore the common themes we hear from caregivers across the province, whether that's about paying for uh, services out of pocket, whether it's about needing respite, but also not self-identifying as a caregiver. Most people take on their caregiving responsibilities because they say, I'm a spouse or I'm a child or I'm a sibling or a parent, and they do what needs to be done. Let's talk about what's available in terms of financial support, physical support, mental support, and what is still needed. Sure. So certainly on our website at OntarioCaregiver.ca, we have links to all of the financial supports that are available through the Ontario and federal governments. And we also have supports for caregivers that can help them navigate their caregiving journey and get the support that they need in terms of peer support, peer mentorship, that kind of thing. But what we know from caregivers is that every caregiving circumstance is unique and it's about finding the supports that you need for you. Karen talked about being a caregiver for 15 years while she was working and working caregivers have their own unique challenges. So one of the programs that we have includes uh, offerings for both working caregivers and employers to better understand the needs of working caregivers and how they can be successful in being both a caregiver and at work. People, they do take extended leaves from their jobs or leave the job market entirely 
to look after loved ones in a caregiving situation. In fact, there's a stat here. Uh, Pre-pandemic, more than one in five caregivers spent 20 hours a week or more providing care. And of those people, 40% faced financial hardship. Then there's a Stats Canada um, report that says 68% of caregivers say they need more financial support. So financial support is really a huge issue when you're dealing with caregiving of loved ones. Can I, it can, is. I ask a, can I ask a question? Yeah. Sorry. Is that Karen? Just before, yes. Just before we get away from it, yes. you said that there was a link for the federal and provincial uh, financial supports. Um, what are those? Because I've never heard, besides the caregiver credit, I've and which I never qualified for, I, I would be really interested to pass that information along on actual support, fin- financial support from the government. Amy? Sure. So you can definitely look at the information on our website at ontariocaregiver.ca. It is something we're monitoring as things change. Uh, One of the changes has been around recognition of caregivers related to serve during the the pandemic. Okay. All right. So in terms, so CERB is the $2,000 a month. Right. So that's different than the tax credits because it actually can have uh, financial uh, support for Mm -hmm. caregivers in it. And Amy, what, I mean, in terms of fighting for more, how is that struggle going? Because certainly it is. Well, one of our roles is to be the voice of caregivers with government and to share some of the information, like what you've described as the statistics about caregivers. In our own research from our annual Spotlight report, we know 80% of caregivers say they're responsible for paying for the expenses of the person that they're caring for. And that's in addition to more than half of caregivers who are saying they're using their own finances to pay for the specific caregiving needs of the person that they care for. So we share these insights and data to uh, provide the broader picture, but then it's also these caregiver stories like Carol Ann and Karen have shared to really shine the light on the real human beings who are taking on these caregiving responsibilities and being impacted. And so we're, we're at the table in a number of discussions to help move the conversation forward and to move the action forward around the kinds of supports that caregivers need, whether that's respite, whether that's financial support, but also that awareness so that caregivers can self-identify and get the supports that they need themselves. Well, Amy, we all know, I mean, as we move toward the future and more of us are aging, especially the baby boomers, you're getting more and more people who are becoming or will become elderly and potentially frail as time goes on. Paying a caregiver to stay at home and look after a loved one is going to be a whole lot less expensive than putting that individual in a home where they may not be as happy anyway. We know that most caregivers and the people they care for would prefer that the person they're caring for stays at home. So this is where those home care supports, and Karen touched on this as well, are so important, making sure that caregivers have the tools and resources that they need, but also those additional uh, PSWs and other uh, therapists or other supports that they may need to stay at home. So there's a lot of conversations going on right now to prepare for additional people who may have needs as they age and to really look at what those solutions are so that people can age in place. It's a complex issue, and it's something that we want to make sure we look at all the angles, including the needs of caregivers. Right. Home care, there's a big push for home care by the Zoomers advocacy group, CARP, as well, that in the end, that is going to be better for society, and it's going to be better for the health system and our our financial economic health as well. Amy, I know you have to go. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. And thank you to Carol Ann and Karen, because I know sharing your caregiving story is important, but not always easy. And I really appreciate that you shine that human light on this today. Amy Koopal. Amy Amy Koopal is CEO of the Ontario Caregiver Organization. We'll continue on with our conversation around the National Caregiver Day. It is in Canada, National Caregiver Day. Carol Ann and Karen, I would ask you to stay on the line. We need to take a quick break. Also, we have callers waiting to tell their stories of caregiving. I'm sorry you've had to wait. I hope you can stay through the break because we do want to hear from you as well. That is coming up next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off for a few days. We are commemorating National Caregiver Day in Canada. On the line with us is Carol Ann Alloway, full-time caregiver to her husband, founder of Family Caregivers Voice, and Karen Lead, who looked after her mom for 20 years, her mom who had Alzheimer's from the very young age of 57. Uh, Carol Ann and Karen, I do want to go to the phones here. There are other caregivers who want to get in on the conversation. Cheryl in Newmarket, how are you making out? Uh, hello, yes, I'm fine. Um I can tell you the story with my husband. In 1970, he had a very severe car accident. He had brain damage, and it took over a year of recuperation for him. And he was fine for a long time. And about 10 years ago, we started to see symptoms. We took him in for some testing, and they said it was uh, from the brain injury back in 1970. So he has been diagnosed with vascular dementia and Parkinson's. Now, <clears throat> he fell a lot at home. I had Lifeline for him. And on one occasion, when he, he fell in the bathroom and wedged himself in, I had to get the paramedics in. We took him to the eMERGE. He had skinned his whole arm. And it was at that time that the doctor put me in with Lynn, which is the old CCAC. Yeah. <clears throat> and they came to the house and reassessed Jerry. Now, at that time, I was getting five hours a week help, which was nowhere near enough. No. Uh, it gradually gained, I think, prior to him going into long-term care, I think we got up to 11. Unfortunately, with the Parkinson's symptoms, he was falling a lot. And we were ending up in the eMERGE on quite a few occasions. And he was losing the ability to know how to stand up from a chair and this sort of thing. And uh, it was just progressing, which, unfortunately, I had to let him go to long-term care, which I'm not happy about. But I had to recognize that I wasn't strong enough to lift him up and down. Yeah, that's... What, has, what has annoyed me with this conversation is during this time that I had a Lynn representative in our house and on our file, it was never mentioned that I could get financial help for anything. So all through this journey with Jerry, we've paid for everything out of our own pocket. And it's interesting to find out after the fact that there, there was um, somewhere for us to go to apply. And I'm sure there are a lot of caregivers out there that are the same way, that we just aren't aware of what's out there. Well, I guess having this conversation today is helping. It's not helping you, Cheryl, but uh, maybe some other people will suddenly realize I can get some sort of assistance anyway. I I think that is great. So with Jerry, because his, his condition was a direct result of the brain trauma, even though they said he is a vascular dementia patient, he isn't really a dementia patient. He has all the symptoms, but they can't give him any medication to help him. Same way with the Parkinson's. Any medication they give him is negative on him. So he's going through this journey basically on his own without any anything to help his memory or whatever. How often are you able to, as a result of the pandemic, get in to see him? Oh, as a caregiver, I can go in every day. Okay. Um, I have a, a strict, um, I have to have a COVID test every week. I've had both my vaccinations in the facility. But when I go in, I still go through the rules that you should. But I can see him every day. I've, I haven't been doing it lately because the latest outbreak at their facility was the variant that came in with a worker. And my concern wasn't so much for me, but I didn't want to bring it out the door to anybody else. Right. So I've stayed away. Cheryl? Was, actually, I was in to see him today. So, oh, great, great. Yeah, yeah. And then I got a phone call that he fell out of bed. So <laughs> it just it never stops. It never know? stops, it's, yeah. It's always a, uh, a concern. Cheryl, thank you so much for calling in. 
Yeah, thank you. And all the best to you. Stay safe. We really only, unfortunately, we could spend more time talking about this issue on uh, National Caregiver Day, but I'll give our guests uh, the final word here. Uh, Carol Ann Alloway, I just wanted to mention as well, your video is part of the City of Toronto's presentation on National Caregiver Day. And as the founder of Family Caregivers Voice, uh, perhaps you have a message you would like to share? Yes, I would like uh, a couple of things. Number one, um, what Cheryl was saying about being able to uh, visit her husband, not every facility is doing that. And that's a real shame uh, because essential caregivers, if they've been taking care of their loved ones, they know all about infection protection and control and using PPE. So I would encourage, and they can be taught that if they haven't. But um, I would also like to have doctors, when they're treating a patient, turn to the caregiver and say, there is help for you too, and hand out a brochure or something, um, pointing them towards ontariocaregiver.ca, because if that had been offered to me right from the beginning, um, I wouldn't have run into all the problems that I did, and it affected me emotionally, mentally, physically, um, and it's really, really helpful, ontariocaregiver.ca. So good to know. Uh, Karen Lead, your, your final comments. I just think um, there's a lot of caregiver stories that, you know, obviously are probably even, you know, the same or even more challenging than mine. And um, I still am very shocked that 20 years later, these these, there's not enough supports or resources in place where, um, you know, the, the amount of money that, that is being saved by the healthcare system is like in the billions of dollars. And it's just, um, I think we need a stronger voice. Um, I think more people need to start really advocating for this in, in, integral role. Like it's not even going to be, it's not a choice. I think it's, there's just going to be a requirement. There's a huge waiting list to get into long-term care. And so one in four people will be a caregiver. So it's going to affect all of us at some point. And um, I think we need a stronger, it's not fast enough. These changes are not happening fast enough. And it's alarming to me. Well, you both certainly brought uh, information, much-needed information, to the conversation today, and I thank you for your time. I know we've just touched the surface, but I do thank you for your time and sharing your stories. Thank you very much. Karen Lead, uh, who looked after her mom for 20 years uh, after her mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease at the very young age of 57, and Carol Ann Alloway, full-time caregiver to her husband and founder of Family Caregivers Voice. Jane, for Libby, I'll look forward to being with you again tomorrow when Peel's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Lawrence Lowe, will be our special guest. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.